0: The thing I think about a lot as an editor, at the core of why do I do what I do? What is it that I like? One, the intellectual stimulation. Two, to me, any good book, fiction or nonfiction, is all about empathy. You're creating empathy for an experience or a person or a feeling that you may not have, or you're feeling seen and you're feeling witnessed by something else that's on the page. That's deeply compelling to me. I wanna be a part of that.
1: Welcome to the Growth Equation Podcast. I'm Steve Magnus, joined, as always, by my good friend and colleague, Brad Stolberg. Brad, what's going on, my man? Hey, Steve. Not so much. Uh, Definitely been
2: a chaotic time with world events. Um, Our hearts break for just all the loss of life and um, how terrible it's been to watch Um, so yeah, hanging in there as best as I can feel blessed to be miles away, feel heartbroken for what's happening, uh, but our show must go on. So here we are.
1: All right. Yeah, no, I echo that sentiment. I don't really know where to go from that, except that like it, it's, it's life is chaotic and we hope that we give you, you know, 45 minutes of a respite from, um, uh, crazy world. So, why don't we why don't you tell us what we got on tap today, Brad? We often get feedback that
2: y'all love the inside baseball, so for a while, Steve and I thought that you know the only conversations about publishing that are interesting to anyone are between me and Steve and our good friend Cal Newport, and that no one else likes to hear these conversations but Whenever we go into anything about publishing on the podcast as a little aside in an episode, we always get lots of notes from readers that y'all want to learn more about publishing, about our writing process, about how it all works. So today, we've got a very special guest on the show. We've got Anna Postenbach, who is our joint editor. Uh, She edits both Steve and I to clear that up. She would have edited the way that I just said that if it was on the page. And, um, we're going to do a, a deep dive into publishing, into what it's like working with Steve and I into how our books get made. Um, we had a couple of listener questions that we're going to try to thread into this interview. So, um, we hope that you find it entertaining and enlightening and, uh, that you learn a thing or two. So Steve, am i missing anything else before. Oh yeah. And buy our books. (laughs) Our show is supported by our books. And if there was ever a call to buy our books. I mean, this is it. Help Steve and I and Anna feed our young children. Master of Change, Do Hard Things, our two most recent books. Anna's imprint is all over them. So if you like what Anna has to say and you want to support and you haven't yet read our books, uh, it's a good time
1: to get them. That might have been the best plug ever. Well, anyways, welcome, Anna. It's a pleasure having you on the show.
0: Thank you for having me. This is such a joy. And it's It's wonderful. It's new for me. I'm excited to be
1: here. Well, awesome. So I thought where we'd start is to give listeners a little bit of your background, because, you know, from outside of the publishing world, you hear editor and some people are like, how in the world do you get to that place? So I'd love to hear a little bit about your journey. Sure.
0: Yeah, I agree. I at first thought that was only a job that is in, you know, a romance novel. Like, kind of like architect sounds wonderful. Um, Well, I kind of thought who gets to be an editor, so I didn't originally start down that path. I wanted to get a PhD, um, and it was during my master's program that they did a wonderful job saying that that was really hard to achieve um, and that you should think about a plan B. So then I spent my master's time writing my thesis, finishing it, but trying to figure out what was next. And it was there that I found an internship at a literary agency. And so my first jump into the industry was on the agency side. So, um, And when I started, I didn't even really know what that meant. I didn't realize they didn't make the books. They represent the authors, um, but they don't make the books. So that was a joy for me, and I, I did that. Um, then I became an assistant there, and then I worked at a small children's book publisher outside of Chicago on the production side. Um, so basically, they help with timelines, things like that. Um, I was also working at a nonprofit at the time, was early twenties, trying to figure it all out. And then I had the joy of finding this job at Harper One, which is an imprint of HarperCollins, which is based mostly between San Francisco and New York. Uh, So I've been here for nine years uh, in February. And I was lucky. I mean, the the path was somewhat meandering, but not too much so either. Um, Mm -hmm. And I've basically grown from editorial assistant here, and now I'm an executive editor. Uh, And it's a wonderful place to be. It fits so many of... My interests, You know, our, our mission is that we publish books for the world we want to live in. And we publish primarily pres- nonfiction. There are some exceptions. We have some fiction and other projects of the like. But that's, I, I mostly work on prescriptive nonfiction here. And, and that's how I came here.
1: Uh, okay, I've got to ask. What was your master's in? And what in the world were you wanting to get a PhD in?
0: Um, great question. Okay, so the... I was at the University of Chicago, and that matters because they they love to reinvent the wheel if they can. So, it was a humanities degree. Technically, it's English based on the credits, but it was wonderful for me because I was very interested in interdisciplinary things. Specifically, I was curious about women's spirituality in their writing. Um, so, my thesis was on the color purple. Um, and my advisor was in the Divinity School, so it was a wonderful fit for me where I was really talking about English, but it was influenced by spirituality compared to religion ideas. Um, and I had wanted to get a PhD in English, um, and then was quickly convinced that that was going to be a very, very hard road. <laughs>
2: Isn't the University of Chicago where fun goes to die? You know, like the University of Michigan, they say like, go blue. (laughs) Yes. In in Chicago, they say fun dies here.
0: They say that. There are also um, other more colorful ways that they talk about it too. Yes, that is indeed what they say. Um, I had fun. It was a wonderful place. It is definitely, it's definitely peak nerdiness, which I adored, (laughs) but, um, yes, it is where fun goes to die. That is what they say.
2: Did you always love books? Were you super into reading growing up?
0: I did. I, I, I would not say that I was Matilda level obsessed with books, but yes, I always did love to read. Um, it was always something I, I adored. I think as an adult, I became far more interested in nonfiction. I, I, that wasn't what I read when I was younger. Um, But I did always love to read. I mean, I think the, the thing I think about a lot as an editor, and this is my romantic version of it, of, you know, at the core of why do I do what I do? What is it that I like? One, the intellectual stimulation. Two, to me, any good book, fiction or nonfiction, is all about empathy, you're creating empathy for an experience or a person or a feeling that you may not have, or you're feeling seen and you're feeling witnessed by something else that's on the page. That's deeply compelling to me. I, I want to be a part of that. Um, that's my, you know, something I can't help but notice is sure. There are always going to be books that are, you know, you know, the tell-alls or something toothy, but I also think people are really interested in comfort a lot of the time in what they read, whether it's comfort that you're okay, what you're doing matters, or comfort of the, the road ahead. And even escapism can be that too. There's nothing wrong with that sometimes. Um, so that's my long answer too. Yes, I've, I've always read, but there are always people who have read far more than me too. That's what I've learned along the way is,
2: One more um, stage-setting question, and I'm, I'm curious, and I know that listeners will be curious. So what proportion of your job would you say is acquiring books, meaning Steve and I have a literary agent. Her name's Lori. She's wonderful. We work with Lori. We put together a proposal which outlines the idea for the book, what we want to talk about. And then editors like Anna essentially decide, is this a book that we want to edit and do we want to sponsor through our publishing house? Do we want to buy this book? And what proportion of your time is spent actually doing the creative work of partnering with an author to take a draft and turn it into a finished product?
0: That's a good question. It comes in waves. I would say the big picture is the biggest misconception about editors is that we read and edit all day. And I certainly wish that was true. Um, It's certainly a part of it. But you're right. A huge... Well, and I should back up every publisher is different. There are places that have acquiring editors and then there is someone else who does the developmental editing for us. It's the same person. So the same editor who buys the book is going to edit your book and is going to be a part of advocating it for it internally, meaning you're positioning it and explaining it to the entire team. You help with title and subtitle development, all of that. And you're editing it. Um, I mean, if I look at a pie chart of how my day is spent, which of course can vary, it's there's email, certainly there's editing. And then you are always, you always have to be looking for acquisitions too. I mean, just for reference, I came back from maternity leave in February and I think I've had 250 proposal submissions in that time. Some people have more than that. Um, but that's my experience. And I'm also then you're also editing books as well. Uh, but so you're always getting proposals in the door and then you're you're reviewing them and seeing if you think there's something there. And th- it always looks different. Some of that is new business, new authors. Some of it is people who are writing another book. Um, it also looks very different for fiction, I should say too, this is only from my experience for nonfiction. and also, my experience of nonfiction at a big five Um, there are lots of different publishing models, but so yeah, you're always, you're always on the hunt for something. Uh, For me personally, I also enjoy scouting, which basically is the nice way of saying I'm combing podcasts. I'm combing the internet for new people. I have quite a few authors on my list who I found and wanted to do a book with. Um, So yeah, it's a big, big part of the job. And then, so then there's the reading of the proposal just to kind of walk you through what the process looks like. You get the email from the agent with the pitch and the proposal for nonfiction. You don't write a full book unless it's a memoir. Sometimes you do write the full book. The proposal is, for those who may not know, it is an overview, sample chapters, um, and then information about platform, which I can come back to in a minute, and then I, I read it. I see what I think. I have to come up with a business plan. I have to come up with what we call comps, comparative titles, do the research on that. We put together p and um, with our team, lots of discussion of, of whether we see potential, if it's a right fit for our list, because um, every imprint has a different specialty. So there is always a question of, is this aligned with what we do and, and what we care about? And can we do justice to this project? Um, And then you take a call with the author. And then if you're interested, there's an auction too, um, which is a lot of work. And it is also a joy and it's a rush and it's part of the job that's so ever fascinating. Um, And you're glued to your phone during an auction. (laughs) There's no way around it. Uh, I have taken agent calls on a run in the parking lot of preschool, uh, in the middle of auctions, all of the things um so yes it's a big part of the work
1: so it's it's fascinating here and i'm wondering how you if you could go a little deeper in like how you balance that because it's like two different aspects you have this like very creative endeavor the editing this bringing this manuscript to fruition and then you have this I don't know how to categorize it. Very like business, like you've got the rush of like, are we gonna get this book? What you know, the auction, all that you described, which are two different, you know, approaches or two different aspects on on, you know, the extremes. I'm wondering how in the day-to-day you kind of, you know, work with that, knowing that like you've gotta be creative and maybe not cutthroat, but some somewhere in that that kind of business model.
0: Uh, Yeah, very fair question. It is definitely a dance. My ideal, and this is, I'm pushing the word ideal because it doesn't always happen in practice. Is something actually that I was inspired by you Brad, on, which, which is very earnest attempt at time blocking. So for instance, I try to have fewer meetings on Thursdays and Fridays so that I can work on a manuscript or read those proposals. But that doesn't always happen. Um, but that's the dream. I tend to have most of my calls Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. And um, and and internal meetings tend to be on those days anyway. Um, so that's a big part of it. The truth is when there's an auction, the time is a little less your own because, I mean, it could be, there's many different looking auctions. For example, the most common one I see, which watch the next three will be different, but they are, you know, two round best bids. The first is due at 9am. and the top four make it to the next round and that's due three hours later, right? That's a, they're always rushing and scrambling. You don't know where you're going to land. You have to make all the strategy of what do I think this is worth and make sure I get to the next round. All of that. Um, usually know a few days in advance when that auction will be and you can line everything up yeah you you have to drop a lot of other things to make that happen so yeah it's a dance like I said I do my best to try to have things cleared on those other days there are certainly nights where I'm reading and it's true for everyone I think um and it it could be worse reading in the evening is is not a bad thing um yeah it it really varies. I mean, it's you're right. Yeah. They're so different. they're two different parts of the brain because editing is a puzzle to me, and that's the best part. And you know, I remember when I was a junior editor, one of the things that my former boss taught me was look for what's missing, which is an extremely hard thing to answer. So, You're doing that, that takes time. Usually, I go into my editing hole. I'm on my couch surrounded by empty cups and cats, and it's, you know, (laughs) that's what it looks like. But then I walk away from it. I usually go for a long hike or something and think about it. You're thinking about your author's growth, right? Asking yourself what's missing, all of that. Then the other brain of acquisitions that you have to jump into, as I said, is the rush, the timelines. You get competitive too, there's no way around that. yeah. But it's also fun.
1: Yeah, it's fascinating. And I wanna dive into that editing piece a little bit because like what you're describing there is like kind of going into the hole with the cats and stuff and like being <laughs> being focused and then stepping back and going on a walk and like having that hopefully like making sense of it. Like that's the same process as Brad and I go through as writers, essentially. So what a lot of people don't understand is like the editor, like your editing makes the book come to life. And I'm going to tell a quick story here that I think it's okay to tell, but for years, Brad and I have been on this email list with a bunch of other authors and um, people like Alex Hutchinson and Dave Epstein and Ambie Burford and some others and like phenomenal authors who have always done well. And I remember early in our, our writing career where Brad and I were essentially imposters trying to figure this thing out. I can't remember if it was Brad or I, but one of us made a comment and said, man, look at our email list. Like everyone's emails are kind of like crappy except for Alex. Like Alex writes, like he had it edited like perfectly, but everyone else is like normal writing, and then you look at their books, and they're wonderful. And that's one of the insights you have as a author: is like your first draft isn't going to look like the finished book. It's the editor there that brings it out. So that's a long-winded way of giving you kudos, and also asking the question of like you're doing the work to bring writing to fruition. Do you ever like what's it like being the person who? Is able to do that is behind the scenes, but isn't like the author's name on the front. Like, do you ever feel like, oh, like I want I want to be the person out front and center, like making this book or or holding that tension?
0: Oh, that's such a good question. Love that story. Also, <sighs> okay, the the to, yeah, we the first answer is no. I have no interest in being out in the world at all. This is this is. This is a big step out for me to be on a podcast. Um, no, I love, I always think of, you can laugh at this, but I always think of the title of the uh, Warren Zevon Greatest Hits album, which is a quiet, normal life. <laughs> That's what I want. That's what I have. I have, um, I love, I don't have any interest in being a public figure. I, my, my, to go on an aside in that way, if I've learned anything from being an editor about what it's like for an author, it's that one, writing a book is hard and number two, it's vulnerable. And that would all be fine with me, except that you also have to promote. And I have no interest in that. Um, and so I, I hats off to folks who love it, like the two of you. You're so good at it. I, I'm an internet voyeur. I haven't posted on social media in forever, aside from retweeting probably each of you when your book went on sale. I
2: am so jealous of you. <laughs> that sounds lovely.
0: Yeah, I, I can't. I'm, I haven't posted since, I think, 2019, other than probably retweeting you guys once
2: or twice. Um, it's part of why your brain works so well.
0: Well, debatable. <laughs> we'll see. But yeah, so I I am so in awe of people who are truly, I, I hope this is a good word for other people, but I think of them as a machine where they have, okay, I've got My newsletter, which as an aside, I think is a great way to practice writing for authors. And I always encourage them to do it because number one, you get to play. And I think play is so important as a writer. You play with topics, what you're good at, what you like, and what do your fans like. And also, I'm sure we've talked about this before, newsletters have a really good conversion rate to book sales um, as opposed to sometimes social does. But we've seen really consistently that if you have a loyal newsletter following and a good open rate, you're going to sell books, particularly at pre-order. But anyway, for the writing process, it's great. Cause you experiment, um, I had a point with that. Maybe I'm finished with that point, but so, um, no, I have no interest in being out there. I love working behind the scenes on it. Like I said, I love the creative puzzle of it. Um, and, you know, it truly is a joy as an editor, to see someone grow. I, I, try to give a little speech to authors when I first start working with them, particularly first-time authors of the goal is for you to grow throughout this experience. The reality is, and again, nonfiction timelines can be different for fiction, but you at acquisition from acquisition to on sale is roughly 18 months. So of course you're going to grow through that process, particularly with something you've never done before, like writing a book. And even if you've done it, they're all different. So when you go into it with that sort of growth mentality, it one takes some pressure off of you and off of the relationship with your editor to, you know, submit your first draft of look, it has a it has to be perfect. Whatever you say back to me is a reflection of my self worth, and I will and edits are painful. Well, to make that feel less painful, you know, to say, well, I'm growing and I'm learning and let's, let's learn together. I I hope is helpful for people. Um, yeah, I, I love editing. I, the things that I think about a lot when I do it are, you know, one, let's make sure the idea comes across. And two, I, I'm always bouncing between the role of being the reader's advocate. And what I mean by that is, and that was a term one of my mentors used, which is, does it make sense to them? Um, at a very basic level for prescriptive nonfiction, usually what we're doing is there's a problem and there's a solution. And are we we're making that clear and are and also are we spending enough time on the solution because that's why people are here. Um, And then I'm also bouncing to an advocate for the author. Let's make this, let's push you to where you can be as a writer and with your message. And as an extension of that, where you're going with your career, wherever you may be. If you are an expert academic transitioning to public figure, we're doing that. If you are someone, this is your third book. Where are you going in your career? How are you bringing your audience? What are their changing needs? Quote unquote, are they growing up? Like, what are your, you know, what are we looking for here? Um, so it's, it's, those are the main pieces that I think about big picture. Um, but yeah, the, as I, as I said, and I'm, it's fascinating to know that and not surprising that you do something similar in the, yes, you're in your hole, you're editing, you're making weird notes. I make a lot of Anna AP come back in the comments so that I can do a search later, um, And then, yeah, I go for my run or my hike, and I'm that person who's stopping and taking notes on my phone as I think about it. Um, That's usually how I go about it. My long answer to you, I'm finished.
2: (laughs) How many books a year do you do on average?
0: Yeah, it does vary. Um, Well, okay, let's assume that's active titles that I'm editing from beginning to end versus a paperback um, conversion. It's a give or take probably eight to 10, but it varies some, I mean, for example, I was on maternity leave for six months, so it looks a little different for me this year. Um, eight to 10 is the ideal, but it can ebb and flow. Certainly.
2: Oh, I have so many questions. You mentioned maternity leave twice. I'm curious, was it hard for you to disconnect from being in books and thinking about books and in some ways escaping the world through books, um, during that period, or were you able to do it?
0: Ah, it was different both times. I have two boys the first time. Oh, well, it was the same in that I was always watching the books of mine that were going on sale while I was on maternity leave. Um, so some of that was harassing colleagues for updates. Um, the first time I went on maternity leave, I told my boss, only good news, but tell me all of it. Um, and then, yeah, I'm, I'm watching the ranking on Amazon of the week of On Sale. I'm looking at what they're putting on their social and in their newsletters and watching their TV appearance or whatever it might be. Um, so that happened both times, but in terms of person and, and the first time I'll be honest, I was scouting on maternity leave toward the end, looking, getting excited for new people. And I, I actually found people that I signed up that way. The I'll plug it. The seven circles. Um, I found them while I was on maternity leave, reached out. And 10 months later, we got a book deal together. Um, the second time but the first time I didn't read for fun. The second time I read for fun, and I did a little less scouting. Um, so take what you will from that. But it, it, I still was thinking about it all, of course. But I wasn't. Um, it's a let me. It is a blessing to be able to take that time away, aside from the entire parenting part of it. It is a blessing to step away from it because. You can really start to think, for me, I started to think a little more about the consumer and what people really are going to spend $29.99 on a hardcover for. Because sometimes it's easy when you're in it to just be excited about something new and exciting. And that, that is important. That is the job and that is what you look for. But you also sometimes have to back up and think, where? what's the big picture? What are people... It was it was really helpful for me to sort of think about those big questions um, when I had just a different, not that I'm saying I figured it all out and that I have all the answers, but it did help to have some context, if that makes sense.
2: Yeah. So now, of course, I'm going to ask, what are the answers? What are people wanting to spend $29.99 on? And to to not put you on the spot and to preface it with a question that um, you probably thought might be coming It seems like it is harder than ever to sell books. Uh, Steve and I have talked about this at length on the podcast. Uh, You are competing in an attention economy that is geared toward 280 characters or uh, 30 second TikTok. So people's attention span and their ability to focus on something seems to be shrinking. Uh, you are no longer just competing with other books, but now you are competing with Netflix documentaries and all the other streamers. You're competing with social media. You're competing with an Instagram account who every day puts up a post with a 3,000-word caption that people are reading. And it's been fascinating as someone in the industry to observe some of these people with these massive Instagram accounts with all these posts. And then they have a book and no one buys the book. And it's like, well, yeah, because you've trained them to come to your Instagram to look for a thousand words every day. So it seems like a very interesting, challenging time in publishing. Um, what did you come back from your most recent leave? What, what are some of the insights you don't have to share all your proprietary secrets, but if you would, we're curious.
0: Yeah, it's a great question. I feel like I have several answers to that. Um, the first would be, you know, <laughs> what were my great revelations? Wow. Um, okay. My, I always truly feel like people are coming, at least for the books I care about. And I think I can work on and do try to do justice to are write These books that give people comfort and wisdom. And that is something that, you know, that is a core of Harper one. I think too, a core question I ask myself are where are people getting wisdom today and i think i'm ever fascinated by you know there's many ways to answer that and angles to come in on it whether it's the more spiritual angle of if you're a part of the spiritual not religious the nuns crowd where do you go for life's big questions Um, that might not for many people i find that science is gospel Um, today that we get so much true wisdom from understanding things like evolutionary psychology, you know, pop psychology has been so popular. And I think it's because people feel like they're getting not only information, but wisdom. Um, But I also think there's a lot to be said about other spiritual practices still offering that. So that's just something I think about. Um, And it's interesting to watch the trends in that regard, you know, specifically, Books on manifestation, books on witchcraft are doing very well right now. They always kind of ebb and flow. They're doing really well. But also, so are books on what I would say are science meets self help and wellness that have to do with they're folding in straight health in a new way. I mean, um, everything from peter Atia type books i mean that's not necessarily spirituality by any means but you're still seeking we'd use this word together the three of us fulfillment um so there's a lot of everyone has different vocabulary for these things and certainly that vocabulary holds power and people have strong opinions on those words but for me it's it's wisdom fulfillment life's big questions meaning um So those are, I'm constantly asking, where are people getting those? And it's different for everyone, of course. Um, And trying, you know, part of your job as an editor is to somewhat have a sense of the zeitgeist, whether that's what's, what are people reading on New York Magazine and that big article. And you're noticing there's a lot of articles on these topics um, to what big, what books have been selling and what have been the bestsellers and what are people constantly turning to. I think for your question about, you know, we had talked about it. Do I worry about the future of reading and the competition for people's attention? You're not wrong. We are certainly competing for people's attention, but I'm also not worried about it. Um, To me, the beast changes, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. People are reading the way they do it is changing. Um, You know, just for context, well, let's look at all the formats of how people read books. There's print, which over a decade ago, people were sort of saying, oh, the death of print media. It has certainly changed, um, but it is not gone or dead. You know, okay, so to give you some numbers, um, Publishers Weekly just reported the other week that print books fell 4% in the beginning of 2000, uh, 2023. But That's only compared to 2022 and 2021. It's actually up from 2019 and 2020. And then there's audio, which is a category I'm fascinated, or a format I'm interested in because in nonfiction, self-help and business or performance books do very well in that. As you both well know, your books do very well in audio. Uh, just as background, fiction still dominates in terms of that ratio. It does very well in audio, but for nonfiction, those are the categories that work. Um, and it's in its 11th straight year of double digit growth. And it also interestingly skews younger. Um, I was just reading also in Publishers Weekly 57% of audiobook listeners are between 18 and 44. Then there's ebook, which is just a fascinating format too, because it's really successful in romance and mystery. Um, And there's a lot of, you know, digital only imprints that have spoken to that. So all of this is to say, I'm not worried about publishing. People still buy books. It just looks different. And I also think there are some people who just don't really read books and never will. And that's okay. And they're going to just, podcasts or read the Long New Yorker article or anything like that um yeah I, I have faith in in the beast
1: <laughs> you know that's good to hear and probably re- refreshing to hear for Brad because we have this conversation probably every every couple months on uh, the existential crisis of books or AI or something taking over and uh mm-hmm we always come back to to what you just said there is there's always a place for books um it just might change a little bit but um it's always there got to be rugged and flexible it's true Th- there you go there's the pitch um so diving into a little bit okay books are going to be around i love the framing around wisdom um Given like that, how important do you think the packaging of a book is? I mean, to really get across like what the reader is, you know, gaining from this in this kind of wild attention economy we have.
2: And for listeners that aren't in, into publishing, just define packaging too, Anna, how you think about that. It's a term that we throw around, around a lot.
0: I was just going to say, there's a lot of ways that you can think about that. There's the cover, interior design, for an audiobook, it's who's narrating it for, and then there's the word we use in publishing a lot is positioning, which is basically how are you pitching it on the jacket copy? Of course, title and subtitle cover art internally. It's how we pitch it with comps. Those are comparative books. So it's this book meets this book or it's the new insert title. You know, it's the new alchemist. It's this meets that. Um, It is incredibly important. There is no way around it. Each of those pieces are important in their own right. That's the quick answer. Uh, You know, there are always... Some of it is subjective also, I should say that. Um, And and also much of it ebbs and flows with what is working in the marketplace. Um, So for covers. There are some things that you'll see for different categories, um, different tropes and trends. I You've probably heard of the book blob, which um, was that aesthetic on books like The Vanishing Half and Untamed. Um, yeah, the quick answer is it does matter. And you have a team at the publisher working very hard on it. And this is something where just from the publisher side, there's also, as you well know, an author and an agent who also is caring deeply and working hard on it on the publisher side, you know, for title, subtitle and cover, it's an editor, their whole team working on it, creative director, publisher, and a sales team and even marketing publicity will weigh in on those things too. Um, the thing I, this is, Uh, My publisher, Judith Kerr, always says publishing is a series of small decisions. And she's absolutely right. Um, So those would fall under the decisions, right? Um, Even, you know, I have conversations with authors of do you put doctor or MD on your name, right? And why do we do that in each case? Um, It really does vary by the book, too. And I know that that's somewhat helpful and unhelpful but it really does vary by the book and by the category.
2: How often are you in the general neighborhood of what you thought a book would do versus surprised in either direction? Um, Because I think that it's this fascinating topic where literary, it's a humanities, it's an art, yet your publisher in particular is quite data-driven. And I'm just curious, like how often. Yeah, I I guess I'm going to stop with any more prelude. So like when you get a book and you think, Oh, this book's going to do X, Y, Z, it's going to sell this many copies. It's going to break through. It's not. Um, How often are you surprised?
0: Good question. It is always a mix of surprise and expectation, truly. And, I remember someone else asking me, you know, what are, can you give me like a model for how certain books work? There isn't, I mean, we have, we have, there, publishing is always a mix of data and intuition. And different departments answer it different ways. That's why a lot of people are involved in all the moving pieces um, from finance to editorial. It really is a mix of all of those, all of those things. And when I say data, that is internally how things have performed, um, certainly comparative titles. That's a huge helpful thing in publishing of what are, what are the comps? Um, and then instinct and intuition that can be, this idea is important and we're going to champion this to, I'm seeing this, in other formats, people are talking about it um, in articles or in a podcast, but there is no book, and so we're going to be first to market, and that's our model here. You know, it is it is different in every case, but really it is a mix. There are always surprises um, and also things that you knew were coming. I mean, uh, for example, you know, just for Harper One, we were honored to publish Viola Davis's book, Finding Me, and... Her audiobook won a Grammy. I mean, that is a beautiful surprise. Surprise in oh, we have a Grammy award-winning book. Um, I mean, the boy, the mole, the fox, and the horse. We've sold about three point five million copies and have been over two hundred weeks on the New York Times bestseller list. And then there are other beautiful sort of I, I, surprise is a good word, but also not the right word. It's just like. Their gifts I suppose of a book that keeps on teaching and uh, those perennial wisdom things. You know, we've published the alchemist, which I mentioned earlier. And I mean, we sell 4,000, 5,000 copies in print alone of that every week. Um, you, and we published CS Lewis's adult works, which are also selling around that much every week. Um, for many people, that's quite a surprise. Um, So I know I'm sort of answering your question, but it is a mix of plenty of things of, we projected it this way. It did in fact turn out that way. And there is plenty of that, certainly. And then there's always the surprise. And then I think the other thing that's worth mentioning is timing is so important with a book, some of which you can predict, some of which you cannot. Um, I mean, the pandemic is an obvious example, but there are many others of... um, if something hits home and takes off just because it came out at the right time, um, you know, I remember Hillbilly Elegy being a beautiful surprise for Harper Collins. And it was right before the 2020, not 2020, the 2016 elections. That's my meandering answer. It is an absolute mix.
1: (laughs) Yeah. It doesn't surprise me. It's that's the, the art part of it that kind of comes in there. All right. As we're, we're wrapping up here, we couldn't help but turn the tables a little bit and ask you to critique us. So two questions. What are your favorite parts of working with uh, me and Brad? And then the more important question is what in the world could we do to improve on our next go round of uh, books?
0: Well, it's easy to say it's joyful. And it is that you both are so joyful, so curious, obviously incredibly talented, very, very skilled translators of complicated ideas for people. That is a very rare gift to be able to, you know, you, you both are very good at taking data, taking things that may not be visible to a public audience because they're in an academic journal Or they're only in the sphere of, you know, this is common knowledge for elite athletes, but not for the average person. You both are very, very good at that. And something that I come back to a lot, I know that Brad and I talked about at the beginning of working together on Master of Change, which was thinking about what your audience is looking for now, which was is excellence and fulfillment. And I think about that a lot. And I think that's very wise to pay attention to. The so that's the book part of it. I also think, and this is coming back to why it would be what I greatly admire about authors is their ability to promote and their ability to read data of what they're how they're what they put into the world and how their audience is receiving it and what's working whether that's I got a great open rate on this these topics whenever I talk about them or this is my most popular tweet however it goes or this is the topic that people want me to speak on that you pay attention to that because data comes in many forms and you're very good at taking that in I also think You both have had an incredible trajectory with your books and they each continue to grow in their reach. And that speaks volumes of you, your skill level and your ability to to have your finger on the pulse for what people want. So for me as your editor, my hope and also my confidence in you is thinking about your trajectories because you both have the very unique position of being established authors who have multiple books under your belt already. And so you have the privilege and the wisdom to be able to say, what do I care about now? And what do I think I'm going to care about in five years? And what do, does my audience care about now? And what are they going to care about in five years? Are, you know, the fan, not very fancy word in publishing is publishing plan. What's your publishing plan? Like, what's the right next book for you? Where are we going why is that building on what you've already established and how is it different to how is it a new evolution? Um, I think those are the big things to think about. And I also think, which I think you both are already doing by the way. And I think too, you know, yeah. When you think about the attention economy, you are very, You think about that in the right way and you offer something, you know, as an editor, when you're down to this acquisition question from the very beginning of our discussion, something I always ask myself and that we talk about in editorial meetings is, is this a book? Is this 256 pages, which is what we call the average length of a book? Will someone spend that almost $30 on it? Or is it a great New Yorker article? Right? I think you both know how to overcome those challenges. How does that sound?
2: Yeah, that sounds good. You didn't answer the part that we're most interested in, though. So, what could we be doing better?
0: Oh, better. I truly, you both. I don't, I really don't know, and that's not a cop out. You guys are very good at what you do. That I mean, the thing is, you're already a- asking these questions, and you also already are very good at of asking for help just like you are now <laughs> not many people can do that and and know that their editor and their publisher is that support system and that resource
2: here's here's maybe a different way to frame I don't know. it and it's a question that Steve and I are constantly asking ourselves and we, we probably should have asked you before we got on the air um, but we'll ask you in front of our listeners because they like the inside baseball. Where could we, in your eyes, based on all the data that you've seen, based on your knowing Steve and I, based on your getting to know our audience, where should we invest the most in developing how we reach our audience? You mean platform? Yeah. In publishing speak, it's platform. For listeners, I think it's, we tune into the podcast, there's the newsletter, There's social media, there's corporate speaking, there's coaching, there's making appearances on the radio and on other people's podcasts. There's all these different ways that we get to share ideas with people and hopefully make those people members of our community and readers of our books. Uh, Steve and I both think that we are best on the page and that's what we do at a world-class level. And so much of everything around that is trying to draw people into our books. So where do you think we should be spending the most time to draw people into our books?
0: Okay, yes, I get it. That's a good question. My my gut reaction is to invest, and this is, you know, the business answer. There's also the important side of, you know, have a good idea, and that is the most important part of the book. But the business part of it is, invest in and learn from your direct audience. And so obviously you both already do that. Um, So that's, as you already listed podcast listeners, newsletter subscribers, you still, I always encourage people to diversify um, their platform. So you don't just want your social followers, for example, um, for instance, something that I often look for when I'm buying a book is have they already sold products to their audience? Um, what's that conversion rate? E- whether it's a PDF ebook for 199 or a course, I always push people in that direction. Um, when we talk about promoting a book just for background, there's the marketing side, which is when it's to your established audience. It's also as far more complicated than that, but for what an author can do, it's like their built in audience. Our marketing team, like I said, does everything. <laughs> Goodreads is involved, you know, partnerships, creative uh, partnerships that we have ads much more complicated, but for the author, it's what they can build with the direct audience. And then there's the publicity side, Media, basically. I think it's always smart to have that direct audience nurtured in a healthy way because one, you can learn from them. And as I said, that's a data point. And two, you don't want to overly rely on something that might be out of your control. Um, Does that make sense?
1: Absolutely. We've learned that lesson and had that many, that talk many a times. I've used this example before, but. Gosh, during our first book, um, before our first book came out, Peak Performance, um, Brad did a pre-mortem and was so scared that Twitter was going to evaporate because it was just the only thing we were on, that that's where the idea of our newsletter came about. So... So you're spot on that diversifying um, is so important and listening to your audience. Okay. This has been fascinating. Thanks so much, Anna, for the inside baseball. I want to end with a fun question. You at the beginning outlined your love of literature and reading and your intellectual curiosity. So what are your favorite books to read or recommended reads for our listeners to check out?
0: I love this question. Um, well, I mean, truly my favorite book of all time is the color purple. Um, and it has been for uh, almost 20 years. I, as a, as a recovering English major and publishing person, it took me a long time to accept that I can read books truly for fun and they don't have to be quote unquote highbrow. So I have leaned into that and I, I think of them as my candy reads. Um, and so, you know, my favorite candy read recently has been the Thursday Murder Club series because uh, I'm apparently an old woman on the inside. Um, I think on the on the nonfiction side, which I do read a lot of, I'm going to tell you a lot of non-Harper One books in a moment, but I promise I will plug us as well. But I, I, one of my favorite books that I read in the last year and a half was Finding the Mother Tree. I just loved that book. And I also loved awe by Dacher Kaltner and I loved how to change. Those have been some of my favorite books recently. Um,
2: by Katie Milkman on how to change. Yes, yes, Yeah. We love Katie. She's been on the show.
0: I know you do. And I love her and I love her book. I quote it to people all the time, like how we get the public to get flu shots and vote. Fascinating to me. Um, so I adored those books. And Gosh, too many to name, your books being incredibly top of that list. I nerd out to so many people about yours. Just as a backstory, I remember when I got Steve's proposal in, and I went for a run with my husband, and we were pushing my son in the stroller, and I just, I basically could give him a TED Talk on why I agree with everything that you're arguing about toughness and resilience. Um, And then I, but I remember talking it out at length with him, and he just doing a lot of nodding. (laughs) While we were running along. Oh, and I remember with Brad's book, I, I think I already told you this, Brad. I finished editing your book, and I went for a hike above our house thinking about it. And I had that revelation that I've told you about many times, which was, this is a wisdom book. At its core to me, it was a wisdom book. And how, how do we tap into that? Um, it's just...
2: Goes to speak to the power of hiking in nature, if it can make my writing seem like a wisdom book. If y'all are uh, out there, there's lots of research that shows for our single listeners that if you go on a date and like you go out in nature or like on a bridge somewhere that like, um, you know, arouses your nervous system in a certain way, it tends to uh, accentuate everything about the experience. So. Um, you, you now need to go on, you now need to go on beautiful hikes after everything that you read of mine. (laughs) I love that.
0: Well, and now you need to read Dr. Keltner off because
2: yeah, that's right. That's where he makes this exact case is bringing it all together.
0: Exactly. Um, so those are some of my, my favorites and I have a few books that I am so excited about that I've been grateful to be the editor on. Um, clearly both of you, I have a book, um, that I love on stress from Aditi car coming out in January um, and a book on social health and the science of belonging from Casley Killam in the summer that have been some of my favorite books to read and edit of course but I have a reader's hat too and I read and edit.
2: Well thank you so much Anna for joining us today and enlightening us and our audience and um, your role is our editor and more broadly just a phenomenal editor of the the publishing industry and readers everywhere are lucky to have uh, and we're so lucky to have you so thanks again for making the time and stepping out from behind the scenes for a moment and um, listeners we appreciate you as always we hope that this was a fun divergence from our normal podcast beat and um, we will catch you next wednesday so until then uh, be well and we'll talk soon